Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk, uh, and as usual for our Tuesday recordings, uh, with me is our friend, producer Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, thanks for joining us. Oh, glad to be here, Bradley. How you doing? So I need to keep thanking you for joining us, or the fact that, that you're part of the podcast itself mean that like it's like it's like when when a parent says that they're babysitting their kid. It's like, no, you're not. It's your kid. Right. Uh, <laughs> it, it's sort of like that, right? So this is my babysitting assignment. Is that what you're? Oh, the only point is I should stop thanking you for joining something that you're always inherently a part of. I think we should have like a hard beginning every time. People just assuming that it's too going to be us talking. We're just going to go right into it. We're not going to have any of the like pleasantries. No more pleasantries. Or we could pretend that we've never met <laughs> each time. <laughs> and just confuse the crap out of everybody. Yeah, because that's, that's, that's the best way to grow your listeners is just to have them abjectly confused at all times. <laughs> that is what we're trying to do here at Firewall. Um, abjectly confuse our listeners at every at every pass. Um, all right, Bradley, we're going to talk about four topics today. I'm going to run through them quickly for 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 everybody uh, for the benefit of our of our confused listeners. Um, we're going to talk about the China ban on Bitcoin. Uh, we're going to talk about a piece you just wrote about when not to fight. Bradley Tusk, known political fighter, is talking about when it's a good idea to make peace. Um, teachers unions, one of your favorite subjects, and the way they're covering the uh, vaccination issue. Um, and we're going to talk about the Mets documentary, which I understand you did not make it all the way through yet, although you plan to, but we're going to talk. I, I, I will. It was, it was just too much in one shot. Yeah, yeah. It is four hours. I think it could have been a good two hour, you know, sort of single episode thing. I guess that's not the way you make the big money these days. Um, but, uh, but it did feel like, I wouldn't say filler, but, but, um, but they, they definitely had more in there than, than, than they needed. Um, let's, um, let's start with China. Um, that's, that's obviously a big, uh, a, a big piece of news about, about, uh, China banning, um, all transactions in Bitcoin on Friday. What was your take on the news? What, why is it something you want to talk about today? Yeah. I mean, be, because look, it, it comes on the heels of China, you know, executing a significant crackdown on tech across the board, right? Whether it's um, what they did uh, to, to Didi or to uh, uh, Tencent or, or any other uh, major platform, I think what China has realized or decided, I'm sure they already realized this, is uh, one of the great threats to their power are not necessarily ethnic minorities, although they, they seem pretty worried about that too, uh, or other countries, but it's you know tech platforms and tech CEOs becoming so powerful within China that they become a rival power base in and of themselves, right? Um, and so just like we keep talking about what impact Facebook may or may not have had on the last election, we do know that Facebook does impact and Twitter and everything else, American politics. And I think for the Chinese, they're just like, we're not going to tolerate any of this. We're not going to allow the Zuckerbergs and Dorseys and Musks of the world to kind of uh, emerge here and have that kind of power where they could rival the government. We're not going to create platforms that could spread uh, massive, you know, anti-Chinese government propaganda or sentiment. And crypto is sort of the worst offender of all from that perspective, which is it is by design a sovereignless currency. It is built for the purpose of evading and not dealing with central banks and central governments. And so it's, if you're the U.S., it's confusing on how to deal with it. But if you're China, it's just downright threatening, right? And they're trying to right. create an electronic right. version of the yuan already. Um, and so to me, actually, if you look at all of their crackdowns, in some ways, this is the least surprising 
uh, and most obvious. Well, I guess, I mean, that's what a lot of people said too. Uh, Anthony Pompliano, who, who, who's on our show um, a couple of weeks ago, was poo-pooing it uh, completely saying, you know, they've said many things like this uh, over the last several years. And, and it's just a, it's, it's, it's just more of the same. And, and he was, he noted that, you know, the Bitcoin price, which took a, a, a little bit of a dive right on the news recovered pretty quickly. And, and, and that this is like not something, a something to worry about, but something uh, that the China essentially has no control over anyway. Um, yeah, I, I, they do and they don't, right? So do they have control over the ability for people to uh, log on on the, let's call it on the dark web, uh, access a, a platform and trade? Yes and no, right? It, it, they can prevent trading platforms from, from operating within China. And more important, they can impose penalties on being caught that just make this not worthwhile for almost any company and for all but the most hardcore crypto enthusiasts. So they can create enough disincentives to effectively achieve the goal. Now, as a, we've talked about this a few different times, and I'm, I'm curious if your view has changed at all. As an investor, what does the sort of growing aggressiveness on, on, of China over tech, what, is it, what does it do to your, to your investing outlook? Um, it doesn't really change mine so much in that you know, we invest primarily in U.S.-based startups. We've done a couple of Israeli companies. But, um, but fundamentally, if you look at what we do at Tufts Ventures, we invest in startups that we think have incredible potential, but for some sort of regulatory either issue or opportunity that if it's not solved, could really limit the company's growth and valuation. So when we think, hey, this company is amazing, but they're going to need a license to sell insurance, uh, take fantasy sports bets, you know, deploy scooters on the streets, uh, provide, you know, prescriptions via text messaging. Um, you know, that's when we invest. But the whole thing that works because we feel like we're good at impacting the government process and the permitting process and the legalization process or the zoning process or whatever it is in lots of cities or states or even federally at once. For all the stuff that I do to work, um, there has to be rule of law, Right. And fundamentally, if there's no rule of law, all of the skills that we think we bring to the table are basically useless. It's kind of like, you know, in Moneyball or maybe afterwards, Billy Bean said, you know, my shit doesn't work in the playoffs. Right. You know, our shit doesn't work in China. Um, <laughs> so uh, it doesn't impact us because it, it, I was already effectively disqualified from investing in a place like China simply because it, it would contradict the entire thesis of our fund. But I think for other investors, you know, it, it's it's the constant temptation and challenge, right? Which is it's the biggest market in the world. It's becoming a more and more sophisticated market in every way. Um, and yet it's not a democracy. It's not a free capitalist market or society. Uh, and that means that you're living with incredible amounts of uncertainty that I think are really hard uh, for American companies to live with. I'm always surprised that there's not more focus on on Apple's vulnerability in all this with with the amount of with the amount of manufacturing they do in China um the the sort of existential threat that the Chinese government poses to them I mean it's it's the it's one of the most profitable companies in the world why did they get a pass from the Chinese government I mean what what what's their what's their sort of magic touch well, I think it's a few things. Like, one is, you know, Tim Cook seems pretty good at politics, right? So there's no reason to think that they don't take 
their Chinese politics just as seriously as they take their their U.S. politics. Number one. Right. Number two, you know, Apple is is really a hardware manufacturer and, and to a certain extent a software manufacturer, and not really uh, a social platform in and of itself. And so I think some of the risks that are inherent on a Facebook or a Twitter or a TikTok um, don't seem as apparent with Apple. Um, and third, because Apple is, you know, using products and chips and everything else made in China in their phones, Apple creates a lot of jobs in China, right? right. So right. the upside is significant, whereas like, is Facebook creating a lot of jobs in China? No, they're creating far more risk than opportunity because here's this platform people can complain to each other, to kind of foment anti-government sentiment. And yet, you know, while Facebook has a lot of employees, it's not enough to move the needle, I don't think, in the Chinese economy uh, or for Chinese, Chinese factories aren't involved or anything like that. So I think Apple just fundamentally has less risk and more opportunity for China than a lot of the other big tech companies. A lot of American business leaders are pretty frustrated with the Biden administration for, you know, essentially continuing the, the kind of aggressive Trump policies, the tariffs and such uh, against China. Do you think that's going to change? I mean, do, you, do, you see, do you see Biden becoming more conciliatory? Um, there don't seem to be any signs of it yet. Yeah, I think he, can. I think he came into office, um, you know, also somewhat concerned about China. I mean, he, he did, I think, chair the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate, and was vice president. I think he understands the China situation really well. So it's not like Trump coming in, you know, just totally, or even Obama or Bush, who just didn't have as, as much experience you know, coming in almost almost brand new and then figuring it out from there. So I, I think he has his doctrine and thesis on China, and I think his people do too. And so, I, you know, the only thing that would really change that is either a, a more overt conflict with China, which would probably make what business leaders are worried about even worse, or um, Biden starts to slip so far on the polls and everything else that he believes there's a political advantage to working better with China, and that advantage may just be raising money from really big U.S. CEOs and, and companies. Uh, not that the companies can give, but the individuals there can. So, um, you know, if we if we take the basic thesis of this podcast, which is every policy output is the result of a political input, um, I don't think Biden's policy is changing. China policy is changing, uh, absent different inputs. Let's talk about Facebook. Um, two more bombs landed on them last week. New York Times, your favorite reported that Facebook uses its own news feed to promote positive stories about themselves. Uh, the Wall Street Journal then one up them with a pretty spectacular uh, leaked internal study from from Facebook showing that Instagram is detrimental to the mental health of teenage girls. Right. Um, Facebook's response so far has been, you know, uh, I guess to use the old gangster term, to go to the mattresses, um, yeah. to, to fight, to deny, to... to uh, claim they're misunderstood. Um, certainly not um, to sort of reflect on on their role in in society in any meaningful way. What's your What's your view on this? Yeah, let's break this up into a, a few different pieces here. Okay. I think there's a a micro and a macro, and they're both worth talking about. So uh, on the micro, the time story to me is is not all that earth shattering. The New York Times also uses its own media channels to promote itself, <laughs> right? So like. Every single company, every single person, every single everything tries to put their best foot forward in whatever way they can. Um, so to me, that's just, you know, typical, you know, time sort of cognitive dissonance slash double standards. But the journal piece, look, like you, I'm the parent of a 15-year-old girl. Um, and I found that piece 
really uh, important because, you know, not only from a macro level is what does this mean for uh, Instagram and Facebook's kind of standing within the various worlds of government, politics and media. But I live this every day. Right. You know, our daughter is Abigail's 15. Um, she's on Instagram. She's on other platforms. I don't want to remove her from them because it's a big part of what kind of rules do you have for, for Abby. Do you, do you have, do you have, uh, like certain, like, uh, do you, does it shut off at a certain time? Did you have to limit it's, her? It's, yeah. I mean, it's supposed to, that we, it, all of the rules work better pre COVID. And then once <laughs> remote school started and everything got blended together, that got a lot harder to do. We right. are now engaged in a fight where every night we want to take, um, her phone and her technology away. She resists it. Um, so we have now provided a CD player and an alarm clock to try to, the excuses she uses for why she has to have her phone in her room, like I need to wake up or I need to listen to music to fall asleep. We've been trying to preempt all of those. Um, <laughs> but look, how much access she has to technology and then what platform she's on, you know, it is really hard. And I don't think we would take Instagram away from her, but I fully believe that it is not helpful to her mental health. Um, and I check her Instagram account and I see photos that, that I think are questionable and I talk to her about it. But, you know, it's I think any parent of a, of a teenage kid, especially a teenage girl, would, would tell you that this is a really tough problem. So uh, we haven't taken Facebook. So I have two 15 year old girls um, who are Abby's age, obviously, because they're 15. Um, we haven't taken Facebook or I mean, they're not on Facebook, but we haven't taken Instagram away from them. Um, but I'm not sure why we haven't. Um, I'm not sure what the reason uh, what the reason is? Like, why why don't we just tell them they can't be honest? Your kids would say, "Dad, you're making me a pariah. You're making possible to communicate with my friends." I find out what the homework assignments are over Instagram. We study. We do this. We do that. You know, like it's just so integrated into their lives. But don't you think we should all band together and just be like, "Guess what? You know, tenth grade parents." Uh, uh, are, are all signing up to take their kids off Instagram. Yeah, I mean, they tried that. Like, don't let anyone have a phone till eighth grade and all these different things. Um, you know, it, it it would work if, yeah, every, if the collective action and perfect concert was pulled off. But you know what's going to happen? It's the same kids who, like, you know, are drinking early and everything else are the same kids whose parents probably aren't going to make them, in, you know, get, get off of Instagram, which means then there's even more of a cast system. Right. right. So like, I'm, I'm not defending the platforms or saying that it's, it's good that your my kids use it or your kids use it. But I just don't know how feasible it is for them to to not use it. But that that's the micro. Right. From right a, yeah. You want to get to the macro, macro standpoint. I think what this just does is it just continually keeps reinforcing the same point over and over again, which is the platforms have completely lost the trust of the public, the media, the government, regulators everyone else. Um, they're still very valuable companies because for as long as parents like us, you know, decide they can't make their kids get off of it, you know, there's just lots of potential people to advertise to. So, you know, Facebook and Instagram and Google and Twitter are all doing uh, incredibly well. Um, but at the same time, I think at this point, they're sort of universally despised by the left and the right, by Republicans and Democrats, by people in state government, local government, and federal government, by reporters and sort of every stripe and sector, whether it's tech reporters, business reporters, political reporters, or people who just, you know, cultural in some other way. And so it, it seems to me that while they've got a lot of money to fight off individual legislation that would limit their uh, ability to market their and use their customers' data, 
or their ability to shield themselves from liability based on what people post or their ability to you know, issue currencies or anything else, um, they can fight it off one by one, both litigation and legislation. But at the end of the day, there's going to be just a nonstop torrent of it um, simply because they've lost the trust completely. And it seems to me that if I were you know, one of these CEOs, I would say, look, I think we need to own up for this, right? We have spent the last 10 to 15 years telling everyone that we've got this, right? We can handle content moderation on our own. We can make sure the platform is not uh, abused and, and used in nefarious ways that are really societally um, damaging. Um, we, you know, aren't going to monetize your data, whatever it is. And the answer is they just can't, you know, and I think it's too hard of a problem to expect any individual company to do on their own. And so, Rather than continuing to say, you know, white is black and black is white and everything's fine, we know it's not, I think it's time for them to, one, you know, genuinely show some contrition for the harm they've done to society. They've done, they've done good as well, and I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive, but I think they've got to genuinely show some contrition. I think they've genuinely got to engage in the regulatory and lawmaking process to see, okay, um, there are concerns about privacy that. Europe has dealt with by passing GDPR. California has dealt with by passing the CCPA. Uh, there should be a macro U.S. version of all of this. Um, instead of just saying, you know, Section 230, which protects them from any liability based on what, what's set on the platform, instead of just saying that this absolutely has to exist because it's free speech, I think recognizing, you know, where it might need to change and how being part of that process. And so generally speaking, you know, I, I think that, that their risk of dying a death by a thousand cuts um, if they don't start to change their tune and their approach to politics and media and regulation. So if you were going to, you were invited in to, to talk to uh, Mark Zuckerberg, what do you expect his resistance to that would be? If you were able to say this directly to him, talk about how to do it, lay out it, you know, and all the things that you know how to do, what's, what, what's he going to tell you? What's the reason? I, I, he's would range a few, I, th- I think some of them would be substantive and a lot of them would be, self-pitying bunker mentality, right? So he would say, it doesn't matter what we do. We've tried everything you've said. I've apologized. I've written a national listen tour. I've done this. I've done that. The left hates us. The right hates us. The media hates us. Um, you know, we're in this incredibly polarized atmosphere, which, of course, he helped contribute to. Right. Um, there's nothing, no matter what clever idea you have, you know, all of my political people have suggested the same thing. It's not going to work. So that's number one where I think he would start. And then number two, I think he would say, look, I've got a company that's now worth a trillion dollars. The market really likes it. And my job is to deliver value to my shareholders and to myself. And for as long as I continue to do that, I just have no reason to embrace things that would meaningfully constrict our growth. Uh, I'm better off fighting them off for as long as I can. And, you know, from a short term economic standpoint, he might be right. Um, And usually CEOs, because they to get fired if the stock price doesn't go up and they don't perform, you know, pick the short-term choice over the long-term choice. Zuckerberg, however, because of how wealthy he is, how much of Facebook uh, he controls, and how young he is, I I think could take a broader look at this and say, you know, okay, um, I may may agree to certain things that the market may feel like are limiting to us in the short term, but they're also what allows our company to really succeed in the long term, because instead of privacy regulations being imposed on us that completely limits our ability to monetize our customers' data, we can really be part of that process. Instead right. of uh, being broken up into three companies, WhatsApp, Instagram, and, and Facebook, uh, by antitrust, we can shape what the antitrust laws 
look like? Um, you know, or look, the, I think that where Facebook probably has their biggest economic opportunity is, is Libra, their proposed electronic, uh, you know, currency, right. and they can't launch it without federal government approval. And they're not getting it, I think, not because of any specific issue of Libra, but just because everybody hates them, right? And, and you're not going to be able to sort of get some of that stuff un- until you take the temperature down a little bit. So it, it would require him both um, looking at things from a longer term perspective uh, and also understanding that, uh, you know, the, the benefit ultimately justifies the cost. Right. There was a quote in that Wall Street Journal story about the Instagram study of uh, 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 an academic sort of comparing um, Facebook to, to tobacco companies, you know, when they when they um, when they hid the studies that showed how harmful smoking was. Do you yeah. think do you think that's a, a, a legitimate comparison? Is it is it that serious? Yeah. I mean, you have kids who are uh, harming themselves either through eating disorders or through cutting or people killing themselves and cyberbullying. And so you know, is, is every Facebook or Instagram post or, or, or tweet um, as, as dangerous as an individual cigarette? I, I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, but I think everyone listening to this podcast, you know, was a teenager at one point, And you know how emotionally fragile most people are um, in that state. And I think as a result, uh, there's a lot of societal harm being done here. And that's why, to me, it, it's going to get addressed from a regulatory and legislative standpoint one way or another eventually. To me, it's just a question of what side of it do you want to be in. Right. Um, teachers Union, um, you, uh, I'm going to read you what you texted me over the weekend when we were discussing uh, what to talk about. You said the United Federation of Teachers Protection of Teachers Who Won't Get Vaccinated is the best opening the education reform movement has had in years. Uh, explain why that is. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time, especially more around a a decade ago than I do today, but I've spent a lot of time working in and around the ed reform movement, uh, running campaigns to increase the number of charter schools or change laws around teacher tenure or or various rules that would sort of promote the interest of the kids ahead of the interest of of the adults in the system. And, And, you know, to me, it's pretty obvious that the teachers union is there to advocate for their members who are adults, um, whose well-being sometimes comes at the expense of the kids in the system, right? Because if more money goes to the teachers, less money goes to some other need with the educational system. If a bad teacher can't be removed from the classroom, all the kids who take that class uh, are being penalized and so on. Um, And so even though the teachers union, in reality, I would argue, is generally very harmful to the interests of kids, especially poor kids uh, in cities, uh, states all over this country, um, they do a really good job of promoting themselves as being on the parent side, being on the student side, uh, and also being so progressive um, that people on the left sort of don't realize that when they're, when they're criticizing charter schools, they're actually hurting the people that, that they say they care about. Um, so, but yet, because the unions have been around for so long, uh, and because they are so wealthy and powerful, um, that cognitive dissonance that exists among the voters, that exists among the public, where the union in reality is having one impact, but the perception is, is a much more benign one, um, it's really hard to break through that. But now, at least in New York City, you have a mandate from the city that teachers must be vaccinated. As of you know, 48 hours ago, something like 8,000 teachers had not been. Um, the city put a, a deadline of today, Monday the 27th, to be vaccinated by. Um, an appellate court, I think Saturday night, overturned that. 
Uh, and so now they're, they're in litigation. But either way, whether the union wins or loses, what they're saying is we would rather uh, our members, if they want, not be vaccinated and risk giving viruses, giving COVID, which can be deadly, to kids um, than to do the right thing and either protect kids or, and their colleagues, by the way, or uh, to, to choose not to teach anymore, right? They're putting their very own selfish needs ahead of everyone else in the system. And if you look at the California recall, which is a topic we've talked about a few times on this podcast, the reason why Newsom won uh, with a lot more margin than I expected him to is what it really was, was a validation uh, of being tough on COVID, of mask requirements, of vaccine requirements. You know, Newsom, his kind of hypocrisy with the federal laundry notwithstanding, by and large, um, was was pretty aggressive uh, around COVID prevention measures, and the voters rewarded him, you know, overwhelmingly. And so it seems to me that that's a pretty clear sign of how people view this, especially in, in liberal places like New York or California. You've got an example where the teachers union is doing something that is clearly uh, not in the interest of students or parents uh, because they politically don't have a choice, uh, and that's an opportunity. So if I were the ed reform movement. Yeah, let's uh, explain how to use the opportunity. What 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 has to happen then? Yeah, I would be out there running ads and having a press conference, and everything else right now, just saying that teachers union ought to support a vaccine mandate and nothing else. Anything short of that, of protecting teachers and allowing them to come into the classroom who refuse to get vaccinated, is a direct affront to kids, to the parents of those kids, to everyone in the school system and in the city. Uh, and how dare you do this? Right? This is crazy right-wing Donald Trump-like behavior. Um, Who's the best person to be making this argument? I mean, like, I, and I don't just mean maybe, is there somebody who you think could come to the other side, somebody even from the left, for example, who, who could who could be like, you know what, enough is enough? Yeah, uh, if he had any credibility, Bill de Blasio actually wouldn't be bad because he's the one that imposed the vaccine mandate. He right. has always been completely in the pocket of the teachers' unions. Um, and... If he were to say, look, you know, this isn't you're not just wrong about this, but here's what it means about you more broadly. Someone who has spent his entire career in the union movement on the left saying that would be meaningful. But the problem is de Blasio is A, um, you know, just doesn't have the credibility and respect among the public to do that. And B, he's probably going to run for governor, which means uh, he's not going to want to upset any powerful things that he thinks you know, potentially could be for him. Um, so who would do it? Do you, expect his, uh, do you expect his governor's race to be more successful than his presidential bid? No, I do not. Because <laughs> uh, his mayoral race was successful because he was able to capture a ton of votes, uh, both from African-American voters in places like Central Brooklyn and Southeast Queens, um, as well as progressives in places like Brownstone, Brooklyn, and the Upper West Side. Uh, if Tish James, who's the state attorney general, uh, runs. She is very progressive. She is African-American, which de Blasio is not. I know his wife is, but he's not. Uh, and Jamani Williams, who's the current New York State public advocate, is also talking about running. Um, all those progressive votes and black votes that propelled de Blasio to victory in his two primaries uh, are going to be much, much harder to get. So I, right, I think right. you have a hard time. Look, I'd love to see him run and fail just, just so we can kind of fully expose what an asshole he is. Uh, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, you know, uh, and I, I think he will run because he's got nothing else to do with himself once, once the term is over. Um, but look, this would be the moment where uh, you would want individual parents to speak up, individual teachers to speak up, um, people who, you know, policy leaders who say, like, usually I, I, I'm not advocating for or against the union, but in this case, this is totally uh, absurd. You'd want to try to bait 
people on the far right into defending uh, the teachers unions, right? So to draw this parallel between, you know, DeSantis and Abbott and Trump uh, with Mike Mulgrew and the UFT. Um, so I think you could launch a, an aggressive campaign where I think it probably, the reason it won't happen is uh, it doesn't come without a cost, right? So if you attack a powerful entity or attack sort of a, a, a favorite kind of child of the left, um, they will come at you brutally, right? As we saw that happen to me in, in the end campaign, right? So they will uh, get the New York Times, start terrible stories about you. They will get all kinds of left-wing blogs to go after you. They will torture you on Twitter. They will protest your, your home. Um, they're still going to do those things, right? But if the ad reform community were tough enough to take that and not fold, uh, this is a real opportunity, and I think they should run with it. I don't know that they will, but I think they should. Right. Um, Bradley, we're going to have a little bit of fun with this last bit about the Mets doc, but um, you, you, your plan was to watch all four hours. Um, you failed, um, which is a little shocking to me, frankly, because I, I, I don't know someone who's more of a Mets fan than you are. And you were also, I mean, you were, what, 12, 13 years old in, in 19 I was 13 when they won, so I, there will never be a better sports experience in my life than the 86 Mets because not only was it the most exciting team, and that's what the doc- documentary, an interesting team, you know, one of the most in history, but when you're 13, it was literally the most important thing to me, right? You know, so yeah. <laughs> it was, it's not like, well, my kid's health, my wife's health, this, that. Like, here's 50 things that are prioritized now ahead of the Mets <laughs> World Series. It was zero. In fact, my bar mitzvah was a week after the World Series ended, and I was so unconcerned with that and so focused on the Mets that a week before the bar mitzvah, the Rabbi Rosenthal called my parents and said, you have to cancel. I said, what do you mean? He said, he hasn't learned any of it. He doesn't know his half tour. He doesn't know anything. And my answer was like, of course I don't. I get the match. And my dad said, it was like a Monday, where he said, stay home. By the end of the day, you better know this half Torah. And I sat there and I memorized the whole thing. Um, and the bar mitzvah was back on. And it, it went as planned. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I'll never have a sports team that I love as much as the 86 Mets. And I really did enjoy what I watched. But, you know, I have a relatively short attention span. And after two and a half hours of sitting in one place watching Mets documentaries, you know, even if I was playing on my phone at the same time, which is more than I could handle. Um, Let me ask you a couple of questions. And then I want to ask you one big sort of question more largely about the the meaning of sports today. But um, who is your favorite player on that team and why? It's it's a tough question. No waffling. No waffling. Mookie was my favorite player. Okay. And I think that's true for a lot of people because he's just such a likable, fun yeah, person. Yeah, he's great in the documentary, too. He's, he's wonderful. He's great in the documentary. You could see how, even though he wasn't uh, a rabble-rouser, how he was just cool with everybody, right? Like, the guys who were doing drugs liked him. The guys who were partying like crazy liked him. The guys reading the Bible liked him. The manager liked him. So, uh, you know, for similar reasons, I liked him a lot. So I, I loved Mookie. Um, I would say the only reason I was hesitating is over the years, and both the documentary, I think, reinforced this, and then again, as someone who watches the Mets broadcasts, um, Hernandez, to me, is just such a thoughtful, impressive person um, that that I think right now I would change my answer to he's my favorite person. It's shocking to me after watching this because he stars unbelievably. He just comes across so – I mean, the things he did on that team, the little details, the – the, that I don't know if you watched the bit where he's on second base and he's telling Strawberry to keep his shoulder in, like from across the diamond, <laughs> he's the plate, and it's just like you just can't believe it. Um, 
I just couldn't believe he's not a manager and that he never managed, you know, like his, his love and understanding of the game just seems next level. You know, it's like, uh, it's incredible. Yeah. And and that's right. The only thing he said that took me aback a little bit, or it made me feel a little sympathy for him. There was a piece in one of the episodes about his cocaine use and how it was all exposed and everything else, which is ironic because the whole team was doing cocaine uh, exactly that time. And he said something, if I heard it right, that kind of was apologetic and basically equated doing cocaine with moral harm, right? You know, it was bad that I did this, just the act of doing it. I was just kind of struck by that because, and look, that was 1984, 1985, a long time ago, and social norms have changed. But I, I don't think you could argue, or at least I wouldn't argue, that ingesting a substance in your body is in and of itself societally and morally harmful or wrong. I think it's sort of value neutral. Um, the ways that you then may act or behave once you're on that substance could prove to be morally problematic in some way. But well, I would push against that slightly. I, re- I, I mean, I will never forget when I was in high school and uh, there was a there was a murder in the in the uh, in the neighborhood that the local drug dealers were responsible for, and the headmaster of the school gave a speech about how people who bought drugs from from that place were responsible for the death of this woman. Well, and, uh, but, but even arguably buying, depending on how you go about it, could have some sort of moral consequence to it. But just the very act of like now right. in the states where marijuana is legal, it's now moral to use it. And it was immoral before. That doesn't make any sense. Right, right. Um, so here's a, a bigger question for you. And this this goes right to your excitement as a 13-year-old, how nothing else mattered to you. You know, I, watching the, the the footage and the fans and the people like literally gather in the street to watch that extra inning game against the Astros and just this the incredible intensity and then the just fans charging on the field at the end of the games. And they, yeah. there's one shot of people like literally rolling down this batting screen, you know, like it was crazy. Um, it just seemed that we'll never have something like that again. Like because our innocence is lost. No, not innocence. Cause they weren't innocent at all, you know, but, but just the, the passion for the players, the team, the city, it was so over the top. Yeah. You know? I would say this. So I would disagree that we'll never have it again. I think it's – look, it doesn't always line up that you have a team with a unique personality that fits a city with a specific personality going through a specific moment in time, and it all comes together, right? Not every championship team in every sport reflects that, and that's why the 86 Mets are considered one of the most impressive and interesting baseball teams of all time. But but the argument that you could never have that combination of factors again – uh, no, I don't, I don't mean just that combination of factors, right? I think that's right. That certainly that, but but there's a there's a is it because we're so our attention is so diverted by all these many things that the singularity of that passion it just seemed different to me. Like like even the players, like you watch them in the dugout during like you know again it was footage, it was edited, it was cut for for dramatic effect, but you'd see the guys how wrapped up in the moment they were. And now you watch, you know, I watched the Yankees Red Sox game last night, which was an amazing game. But like the coldness of the sort of basic experience of the players and the fans, it just doesn't seem anywhere near that. Yeah. And so would, would you argue that simply because after the strike in 94, 
the mentality shifted among both players and fans and, and it could never really be recovered. I, I wouldn't have pointed to that, although I do think that's interesting. I, I just think that the that that the amount of sort of ways to divert yourself in the world just they basically deaden the impact. Yeah, let me let me let me push back on that. Which so that's true, right? And even when I was watching the Mets documentary, I was still doing stuff on my phone. <laughs> At the same time, you're not texting right now, are you? Uh, not in the last like 30 seconds. No. <laughs> uh, I was complaining about you over text to Megan before that. Um, oh. I don't know because so much of the ways right now that we divert ourselves are so transient, or on platforms that we just discussed about Facebook and Instagram are so toxic uh, that to have something that you genuinely, truly can love, like a particular sports team in a particular moment. Uh, I, I think that that can still breed that kind of uh, that kind of excitement. And let, let's let's so when when the Cleveland Cavaliers won the NBA title in 2016 or 17, whatever year they won, right? Um, I'm not sure that people from Cleveland didn't feel just as strongly and just weren't just as excited about that as you and I were in 1986 with the Mets. Okay, all right. I think I mean I, I again there was something there was something so all encompassing about it that that's captured by the documentary. And I think that was one of the, the greatest things about it. I would say for people who are um, worried about spending four hours with it, I'd say watch the first episode and watch the fourth one. And the, and those two are so much better than the other two um, that you'll, you'll get. Yeah, or, or just don't do it. I didn't try to watch all four back to back. It is. I thought I was going to be so in love with it that like, I wouldn't move a muscle for four okay. hours and I really did like what I watched and I would like to finish it, but it wasn't so overwhelming that, you know, I could sit there for that long. All right, Bradley, this takes us to the end of our podcast. Um, we don't even have to thank each other based on the way we just talked about it. No, this, in fact, right? we're not, we shouldn't even acknowledge it. We should just hang up. <laughs> so, Goodbye. All right, we'll see, uh, we'll see the listeners on Thursday. Thank you.